0: My name, as you probably know by now, is Brent. And this is how my podcast started. Welcome to Fandalites, the weekly show where Jen and I read and discuss every Animorphs book in order. Uh, This week we're doing Book 30, The Reunion. This book opens with Marco skipping school to hang out downtown when he gets knocked over by none other than his mom, Visser 1, but she's wearing a disguise. He tails her and discovers she has an office in a building downtown. He, Tobias, and Axe break into her office but are caught between Visser 1 and the forces of Visser 3. Marco comes up with a plan to play the Vissers against each other and take them both out. Things do not go as planned. By the end of the reunion, Viscer 3 is still alive and Visser 1 is missing, but more importantly, she knows Marco is an anamorph.
1: Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. This was another bangin' book.
0: Oh, man. It was hard for me to take notes during this one because it was such a page turner.
1: Yeah, it was super engaging the entire time. The, the, uh, it, and much like the last book, it's partially because it, it sets up already with a really good struggle of Marco having to deal with his mom
0: uh, slash visor one he, he, The book opens, it doesn't have the normal cold open. It opens with him having a nightmare about his mom drowning. And then he has to spend the whole book pretending that he's okay with leading his mom into a death trap.
1: Yeah. I mean, best case scenario- it's a death trap for her. I mean, not best case, medium case scenario. It's a death <laughs> right. trap for her and not for th- for them and all of the hork in the Free Colony.
0: Oh, uh, I should mention at the top here, this one is written by Elise Smith, who also wrote books 37 and 46. She now writes under the name Holly Chamberlain. Uh, her most recent novel, The Summer That Changed Everything, will have just come out when this episode airs. You can hit her up at holly chamberlain on twitter and her website is HollyChamberlain.com.
1: yeah i thought this was a really well written book there were a lot of moments in it where i was like damn like damn
0: yeah thumbs up so far um my impression has been that the the negative reputation that the ghost written books have i i'm not seeing it like that first one the extreme was very boring hmm <laughs> But like most of the objections I've had, like honestly, I've I've liked the ghost written books in this section of the chronology more than the K A written books.
1: I I will say I think they're they're I they are very well written and they are very tense. They don't have quite the thing that I associate with animorphs, which is body horror and weird descriptions of morphing. I I feel like the horror aspect is a little bit removed. And these books have been, again, still very tense, and very engaging, but not necessarily the same horror angle. So I can definitely see how young Jenna, after reading so many books that were the KA books that were really creepy and very fun, getting to these and being like, well, but this isn't what I'm here for.
0: No, I agree with that. Uh, The the ghost written books that we've read so far definitely do not as lovingly describe the horrific process (laughs) of morphing. Yeah. But I'm gonna admit here, probably to my shame, that young Brent treated the morphing descriptions in these books sort of like he treated the shadow walking descriptions in the Amber books by Zelazny, in that I just sort of breezed over them to get to the part of the book I actually liked.
1: Hmm. See, I have to assume, based on what I know about adult Jenna, that <laughs> Jenna was super into the morph descriptions and was really there, present, and accounted for all the horror bits.
0: Oh, that's wild, because like, I definitely read them attentively, the first couple books, and after that, I was like, yeah, all right, I, I get it, basically. Mm-hmm. I know how this works, so...
1: I thought, yeah, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that, because actually, I thought, as I was reading the descriptions of the morph in this book, that the morphing felt more like static snapshots rather than like a transformation so so the language we got was less about like bones moving and organs shriveling and more like at at this moment I am four legs and at this moment I've got wings and it it felt more cut and dry Mm -hmm. and I think that's part of why it didn't seem as horrible and horrifying and that's not a complaint i thought it was still like very very well written but it definitely had a different feeling for the morphing sections
0: i can 100 see that because you're right they were more perfunctory and i didn't quite notice because like i said normally i just sort of skim over the elaborate and <laughs> lovingly detailed description of the <laughs> morphing process uh but yeah that that totally makes sense
1: yeah so we i mean there's a lot here I, I wasn't always certain how this plan was gonna roll out, and I think that's part of the tension. Yeah. Is that it's definitely there's they have the anamorphs, they have the fake projection of the free Hork-Bajir colony that the Chi are providing. Thank you, Chi.
0: I think it might have just been Eric actually. I
1: think it might have just been Eric, yeah. Um they have Visor One and also Visor Three and their separate forces. So you have all of these things converging And I wasn't always certain how they were going to play that out. And I don't think necessarily that's bad, but there were times when I was like, I just want a little bit more information.
0: Yeah, you want Marco to let on in his internal monologue what his actual endgame is?
1: Yeah, a little bit. His endgame was, I don't want to kill my mom, which I respect.
0: Well, his his actual endgame was get the viscers to fight each other, and then murder the one that's left standing when they're not paying attention.
1: Yeah, and question mark, question mark, save my mom.
0: I mean- the whole book he spends a lot of time insisting probably trying to convince himself but insisting loudly that Mm. he knows that if it comes down to it his mom has to like die in order for viscer one to be taken off the board which honestly if I was a controller I'm not sure that I wouldn't be like yes please just kill me Mm. and we saw that in book 29 actually when Cassie was in the yerk pool that the controller who like dropped to his knees and juked away when they caught him he was begging them to just kill him so he didn't have to go back to it
1: yeah and and it's it's especially dicey at the end because as we see in they're trying to pretend like they're andalites when they're talking to vizzer one and they actually do (laughs) yeah they do some of them do better jobs than others but by the (sighs) by the yeah brett
0: oh tobias does such a good job because like (laughs) He's from an Andalite lineage. His dad's an Andalite, his uncle who he spends all of his time with is Andalite. He's got a great lock on like the Andalite method of speaking about other species. And I think the rest of them, honestly, I think the rest of them do a real good job too. It's only Marco that really fucks up at the end when he makes a human pop culture reference and he sort of admits that he does that on purpose because he just wants to hear his mom say his name one more time before he murders her, which is oh so sad. It's so. It's in fact, he
1: specifically says like he would absolutely ruin this plan if it meant he could hear his mom say his name one time. And like, oh, that's good writing. Good heart wrenching writing.
0: There's a lot, and and this is sort of. I guess this is sort of like the book where Jake was a controller and tied up, where so much of it takes place in Marco's head Mm. that it was hard to take a lot of notes about the action that was happening. But like the entire book is Marco really struggling internally with the fact that his mom is against her will on the other side of this war and there's nothing that he can really do about it.
1: Yeah, we have that scene where his mom is collared to a yurk, a transportable yurk pool (sighs) yeah and and like crying, and he's like f- just a few feet away, oh my God, and can't free her like oh, that's so devastating
0: I know oh
1: yeah, and and we have I also thought there was a really great scene where they're talking through, and Marco is as you have said, reaffirming once again that he knows. That if it comes down to it, they might have to kill Vizzer 1. In fact, that's probably what's going to happen. And Marco or, or Rachel is sort of like, well, do you think you can actually do that? What are you? What's your plan? And Marco says, well, what would you do? And Rachel says, I guess I'd hope somebody would come along and take the decision away from me. Christ. Yeah. And I thought that's such a, a poignant take on the situation. That's very true and very earnest without providing an easy way out for Marco.
0: Marco seems to struggle the entire book, I think, with with the tension between him wanting to save his mother and hating the idea of being pitied by anyone, especially the Mm. other Animorphs. Mm. It says a little something about the relationship between Rachel and Marco that when she's dunking on him about his driving, he says, Rachel's being nice. Something must really be wrong. Like, that's her being nice, dude. She just said that you, sh- <laughs> you suck at driving.
1: Yeah, she ribbed him in a in an affectionate way, but it was still like a, a pretty wicked burn.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen Marco as someone who can appreciate a good burn.
1: Yeah, it felt like she was trying to distract him a little bit mm-hmm. and maybe that's why it read to Marco as being nice.
0: <laughs> I can see that. But I, I like that sort of insight into the Marco-Rachel dynamic where he is entirely, and I identify with, with this more than I probably should about laying and receiving sick burns and the like mad respect that you give to someone who has just burned you so thoroughly and and Rachel normally is mostly serious when she burns Marco but he can tell that she's like really trying to be just sort of jocular about it this time rather than her normal half jocular half my god you are a creepo commentary
1: yeah they strike a good balance in this one and I think maybe that's part of the thing that Marco hates (laughs) (laughs) he he doesn't want that he wants it to be normal so that he doesn't have to face this difficult choice yeah that he's almost inevitably going to have to make
0: i get the sense we see in this book marco social engineer his way out of a lot of situations mm. and i get the sense that marco's not really good at lying as much as he is really good at making whoever he's lying to not want to deal with getting him to tell the truth hmm it's not exactly like a somebody else's problem field from Hitchhiker's Guide, but it's operating on similar principles where you just make having to tease out the truth from whatever bullshit you're laying down so exhausting that the old person just doesn't want to deal with it anymore and wants you to just go away so that it's not their problem.
1: You mean like the, the opening where he sneaks into the building by pretending to be somebody's son?
0: Yes, exactly like that.
1: <laughs> well, I... I'm wondering if that's not something that's also part of the author's sort of M.O., because actually a very similar thing as to what you're describing happens later when they're escorting Visor One through the shopping mall, because they make her go in and buy like a pair of gloves and a scarf, or what what did they say? A human artificial hand (laughs) coverage. (laughs) Yes. And... And she's she's going into the store, and Rachel or, uh, Marco sees that she's starting to be followed by a guard. And Marco is like, "Oh, I know what that's like," because Marco is half Hispanic, and there is a moment where the guard tries to stop Visor 1 because the guard is a controller.
0: Because I just assume
1: most of the people who work at the mall are controllers now based on how much shit goes down there.
0: It seems like a weirdly strategic, strategically <laughs> important point for the year. It's based on how many people <laughs> that they have in charge of it.
1: Yeah, so the guard stops Visor 1 and says says something like, you know, if you're gonna have to come with me. Visor 1, secretly. And then Rachel, with like a cap on and her, her head duck down comes down and makes a big fuss about it appropriately cuz again Visser 1 is in Marco's Hispanic mother <laughs> and she she comes up and is like I saw this woman pay for these why are you hassling her what kind of store is this and it really it works they get Visser 1 away but I think that's almost the same thing is that it's just that they she makes such a scene that they don't want to engage anymore
0: I think it's subtly different. Yeah? Yeah, because Marco's thing is about just telling such implausible lies that going through them one at a time to get him to, like, admit that he was lying about that. They're so weirdly interconnected and implausible that it just is exhausting to even think about it hard enough to get him to tell the truth. Hmm. Whereas I think Rachel is just on her home turf. Like she just, she knows how to deal with that type of situation in a store in the mall. Oh, yeah. Because she knows the mall and she knows the stores in the mall.
1: Right. You can't make a scene in Bloomingdale's. Exactly. The store will get a reputation, exactly. a well deserved exactly. reputation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually a good point because we also have a scene like right after that where Rachel detaches herself from the crowd and then disappears in like a back hallway. Like she's like going through a storeroom and just in like a maintenance hallway in the mall. And I love the idea that Rachel has like mapped out the entire mall, not just as a shopper, but also the back scenes. So I just imagine her like morphing a mouse or something and mapping out the entire store. And that's really delightful.
0: I'm not even sure that she had to morph a mouse to do it. I think she might just have absorbed it through osmosis because (laughs) like in our headcanon non-existent Animorphs RPG, Rachel definitely has a trait that makes her an ultimate mall citizen.
1: Yeah, she's, she's like a ranger and her preferred hunting ground is the mall.
0: This is sort of a digression, but there was a, uh, a free game on the internet in the early days of the D20 boom called Malls and Morons. Uh, based on I think the Star Wars D20 system, and uh, the whole thing was you played like ridiculous caricatures of mall rats, and one of the classes was Ultimate Mall Citizen, which was the paladin analog, and they were the protectors of the Weenus, uh, the weekly net estimated income of stocks, who who opposed the malevolent masters of the Nut Graph. And I thought about that a lot while they were in the mall because I have a problem with my brain. <laughs>
1: A lot I I mean they're books for teens, I get it. it not just teens, 90s teens. Oh but there's my God, a lot yes. of these books happen in the mall.
0: They are an incredible time capsule of the late 90s. I think this book takes place in like 97.98 roughly. Yeah. Uh, and there's, it's just, it's, it's perfect. It is exactly correct. Yeah.
1: Whereas in Buffy, they were always hanging out in the library. That's not realistic. Well, this is, this is realistic. They're at the mall. They got mall, mall missions.
0: I mean, in Buffy, they had to do a lot of research in the like bizarrely large occult section of the Sunnydale High Library (laughs) about (laughs) monsters they were fighting. Like they went to the mall when they had to rocket launch, uh, DeHoffren or was it DeHoffren? No, that was on his remember. boss. Yeah. The Judge. They had to rocket launch The Judge. Yeah. But uh, they spent more of their time at the Bronze, which was not my experience as a teen.
1: No. I mean, there weren't a lot of clubs in the city we grew up in, so...
0: I mean, I, I there was a place called The Escape, uh, which was a teen center, and they had, like, a Sega Genesis and some <laughs> foosball, like, some air hockey tables and a dance floor, uh, and it was... Not the bronze, that's for sure. There was not my <laughs> music, but also really small town, so I guess impressive yeah. that they had anything for a teen center.
1: I guess. All I can think of is the skating rink. Which is basically the bronze, I think we can both agree. Moving on. Mm. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> so there's a so in the scene where at the opening where Marco is trying to follow after Vizer One, we get a whole bunch of scenes that are pretty intense but also pretty funny because they're like there's that one scene where they're all in the elevator and visor one's in the front of the elevator and marco's in the back corner and he just (laughs) quietly morphs into a cockroach because everybody in the elevator is looking forward because it's a long elevator and they don't want to engage which i get (laughs)
0: <laughs> honestly that's a scene that while i was reading it i was thinking it would work so much better in the present day than in the 90s because where when it's taking place i'm like all right i'm i'll buy this but it's a little bit of a stretch for my suspension of disbelief uh because i ride an elevator every day and they're not that big yeah even when they're super crowded they're not that big and if it was modern day i you could just say everybody's staring at their phones mm-hmm And I buy that 100%. Yeah,
1: I also thought it was a little, mm, it it seemed implausible is a good way of saying it because he, because he also, he morphs and he leaves his clothes behind. So now there's just a pile of clothes in this elevator.
0: You know, it didn't break my suspension of disbelief. I'll give it that. I, I thought, ah, that's a little fishy, but it didn't break my suspension of disbelief.
1: And then and then, um, uh, very soon thereafter, he acquires human DNA of an old dude who works at the building and excuses himself to an office and where he gets accidentally sucked into an office and then morphs into that human. Uh, and Cassie wasn't there to see it, so that's all fine. But as he morphs from his human Marco <laughs> body- Hold on,
0: hold on. Yeah, what? (laughs) I love that your rubric of whether or not it's fine to morph sentiences was Cassie there to see it because we've established that morphine sentience is like her thing. Does she just get jealous? Is that it? (laughs)
1: She's not there to point out that he's doing it and that it's a weird thing to do immediately before doing it like she does in all the other books. (laughs)
0: right right except when it's just her when she morphs the Yurk in book 29 when she Mm -hmm. does not point out that it's a weird thing to do because there's nobody there to observe her really getting into it
1: yes yeah it's uh he morphs marco morphs into this and as the the morph moves from his marco human body to this older slightly overweight human body his bike shorts tear because they don't get absorbed into the human body that he's morphing? I thought that was really confusing.
0: That's almost gotta be an editorial oversight because I... (laughs) As amusing as it is uh, and as amusing as the scene of him as a nude old guy, like, peeking over the top of a cubicle saying, no, go away! It's fine! Everything is fine! Go away! (laughs) Uh, And then like, knocking his actual self-unconscious nude. Um... (sighs) it's it's very entertaining. I bet though that like when he morphs back to his own self, the clothes will be there. so I'm pretty sure that it's just like whoever was editing it thought that was amusing enough that it wasn't worth setting back for revision to have them just blend seamlessly into his nude old body. <clears throat>
1: I mean, but that's the thing, though, is that whether whether the bike shorts meld into your new human morph or are torn off, they're still nude, so you still get those wacky old dude nude hijinks <laughs> that the animorphs are famous for. But in it's just, I don't understand what's special about because this just made me think of the book where if you are morphing into another human body, you can't thought speech it's there's like there's something weird about human dna that makes the regular morphing rules get a little jank
0: That 100% fits with my Star Control 3 Animorphs crossover fanfiction that is in my head uh, that I posted about on the official Twitter several times because in Star Control 3, humans have a particularly unique DNA that the fucking uh, Eralu want to harvest to shore up their own failing DNA because they like failed on the threshold of evolving into completely pure energy beings. So, mm. I'm really enjoying that like there's something unique about human DNA because it fits. It fits. Yeah, I
1: think so. I just wish we knew what. Maybe it's maybe it's like a human to human issue and less like a human DNA specific. So maybe if like you were an andelite morphing into a different andelite, you'd have weird issues too?
0: Like you wouldn't be able to thought speak? Uh
1: probably not that since all andelite thoughts think speech as far as we aware
0: think think not speak speak.
1: yeah (laughs) it's probably not that because as far as we know all andalites thoughts speak to each other (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: Maybe it didn't seem like Cassie had any weird issues when she morphed Rachel that one time, other than you know being able to tap into Rachel's shade throwing instincts.
1: <laughs> oh, didn't we get uh, an email question like this? Wait, we can circle back to that if we want.
0: Oh, you know what? We did. Let's let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and do it. Okay. The email that we got is another one from Walt. Walt says, "Hey Brent and Jenna, we all know that when you morph an animal for the first time, you can be overtaken by its instincts." Like, a predator morph may make you chase things that are smaller than you, or a termite puts you into hive mind mentality. After you answered the question about who you would morph into on the cover of your Animorphs book, it got me wondering, say one of the Animorphs acquired and morphed you, what overriding instinct do you think Jake or Cassie, or whoever, would feel when they turned into you? What is such an essential part of Brent slash Jenna nature that these teens couldn't resist enacting it while they were stealing your forms? Is this question too personal for a podcast? Thanks for answering <laughs> yours truly, Walt. Walt, there is no question too personal for this podcast because we overshare just like as a hobby. <laughs> uh,
1: this is such a good question. It's really making me introspective. What, what? instinctive Jenna behavior would they not be able to resist?
0: I'm curious to hear the answer to this too.
1: My first impression would be to shoot finger guns. (laughs) I love it. I fucking love it. (laughs) I get, because that's something I do instinctively without meaning or intending to a lot. (laughs) And I feel like I feel like Cassie would turn to Rachel morphed Jenna and say, how are you feeling? And Rachel would instinctively throw the finger guns and then say, I don't think I have control. (laughs) 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 Dumb. Okay, Brent, what would yours be?
0: Oh, man, Um, I feel like anybody morphing me would have an axe style taste explosion, but a brown teriyaki rather than cinnamon buns. (laughs) So they'd just be like shoveling it into their face.
1: I like that a lot. I was going to say, I was going to say for you, I was, I think they would like blank out into Brent and then wake up 10 minutes later with like a beautiful cocktail that they'd crafted.
0: Oh, that would be real nice. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Cause all, I mean, all I can come up with is self-deprecating stuff because that's my style. So I was <sighs> thinking like, uh, napping. They want to nap or... <laughs> you know uh you correct i like i like that they just they immediately head to the bar and start mixing something that that makes yeah. me feel good about myself actually <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks jenna you're welcome bren i'm glad i could help
0: yeah yeah
1: is there anything else in this book it, again this was a very well-written book but a lot of it was marco internal stuff so there isn't tons to talk about
0: I definitely wonder how Visser One's obscure death will turn out because we're pretty we're pretty certain mm. I think that Visser One or at least Visser One's host Marco's mom isn't dead, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't have made such a big deal out of it at the end.
1: Yeah, I it seems so unlikely that She's actually dead.
0: Right. So I'm really excited to find out, like, what's the deal with Visser 1? How does Visser 1's Yurk survive without access to Candrona? Or or does Visser 1's Yurk get access to Candrona because Visser 3 gets brought to trial for criminal incompetence, which is <laughs> apparently a, a thing that you can get charged with in Yurk society, which, like, man, I've never been jealous of the Yurks before now.
1: <laughs> I'm just curious because she, Visser 1 knows That the quote-unquote Andalite bandits are not Andalites; that they're humans, and furthermore that her host's son Marco is one of them. So she has really concrete information, and unlike the rest of the Yurks that are under Visor Three, she has the power to do something about it, unless. She, unless Visor 3 is able to bring like charges up against her and it, maybe it's like a shoot on sight situation. So maybe she has like her own, cause she has her own forces who are loyal to her, even though she's kind of on the outs. So maybe.
0: The Yorks have a word for that shoot on sight type situation, but I can't remember yeah. what it is.
1: I don't remember either. So it it's there's, cause she's, she's on the outs already at this point. But she's not fully out. She is still visor 1. So maybe it's a situation where she has this really important, vital information, but she cannot take it to any Yurk in power because they'll kill her immediately. But I don't like, because I, how, how is that information not leaked? How does that not destroy the Animorphs? Maybe it does? I don't think
0: it does. I want to, I want to find out. That's the thing. I'm, I'm excited yeah. to read. Um, I'm excited to read the next book in the series.
1: Yeah, this is a real, real interesting sort of Damocles that's hanging over the group now.
0: The other thing I wanted to talk about is that we have, I feel like we can bring Hecate back into it here, because Mm. Visser One has like a a Charlie Day, Pepe Silva style red string board with (laughs) uh, satellite photos on it. And she's sure that there's a a Hork-Bajir, a free Hork-Bajir colony on Earth. And that makes me wonder, like, has Hecate not been doing the InfoSec like obfuscation of the Freehork Bajir after all is visor 3 really just too stupid to use satellite photos
1: i mean it is so possible or maybe the illimist was blocking out visor 3's business but wasn't even paying attention to visor 1 is it possible that
0: seems unlikely i think maybe it's just just hecate wasn't expecting that particular attack vector
1: it's possible cuz i i mean there's no reason for us to believe that hecate is familiar with visor 1 really Right. Depending on how far into Yurk uh, computers she's hacked.
0: Well, and we know that, that Hecate is guarding from like the Yurk High Command, the Council of 13, etc. And Visser 1 has like a, an AOL email address or something.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Visser1 at AOL.com, I think. Or I, I don't know. Is there, is there a weirder 90s email provider that we can attach Visser 1 to?
1: Um, no. Earthlink, maybe?
0: Oh, Juno.
1: <laughs> I kind of this is horrible. I kind of imagine that vizzer One uses Marco's mom's old email address oh. uh, rather than updating everybody's contact books. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because she regularly emails Marco's mom's email contact.
1: Yes, it comes up a lot. Or she she took over that email when she took over the body and now you know, just the, the lines are too crossed for her to, to be able to pull apart. So
0: Okay, assuming that Visser1 had to create their own email address, yeah. do you think it's just Visser1, or do you think that maybe <sighs> was taken so they had to append their graduation <laughs> year to it?
1: Oh, so it's like Visser180.
0: Yeah, like Visser183 or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's possible and very funny. Visser183 at Juno? Yeah, at Juno.net.
0: Yes, okay, <laughs> that is, that is canonically my my <laughs> what I picture Visser1's email address as.
1: Yeah. That's I really like that they have to use email to contact Vizzer1. For some reason, that's extremely funny to me. <laughs> and Axe has to, like, hack open, like, a VPN for them to send an email to her from so that they can't be traced.
0: Man, and you know that Hecate's got an automated system set up to, like, monitor when there's Axe-based hacking activity coming from the Wildlife Rehabilitation <laughs> Sanctuary. Because, of course, she knows who all of the Animorphs are. She's really yeah. good at this.
1: I mean, if the Yurks do, Hecate definitely does. If the Yerks Yerks know that they're human, and they do, Mm -hmm. then Hecate definitely has profiles on all of them.
0: I really want the Yerk Peace Movement to hook up with Hecate's human survivors support group so that they can work together.
1: That would be so powerful. I know. Trying to think of what how she could meet up with Tidwell. Like what how can we cross those lines?
0: Everything's such a black bag operation in this. It's so high stakes with your their OPSEC. I feel like that a lot of the natural allies in this war are avoiding each other specifically because they don't know who to trust.
1: Oh, that's totally fair. Yeah. Hecate's been through some stuff, so
0: Yeah, that's true. Everybody in Hecate's group like they're probably gonna have as much trouble as Axe believing that uh that that a Yurk is wow. not going to just take them back to the pool.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if there are rumors of a free Hork-Bajir colony, I have to assume that there are also rumors about Hecate. So maybe it's the sort of thing like, I would assume the Yerk resistance movement would try to reach out to her at some point, but yeah, I think you're probably right. She probably wouldn't believe or trust him.
0: Man. And who can blame her? Alright, we gotta incorporate this when we eventually do our actual play podcast of our non-existent Animorphs <laughs> RPG in like, 30 or so episodes.
1: <laughs> I'm into that. I think Hecate is a great character for that. She can be our NPC quest giver. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah.
0: The the players will have hooked up with the the human survivors support group. Yeah.
1: Uh, There is one thing in this book that I know we both wanted to talk about that I just remembered. And that is at one point when Visor 1 is sort of teasing out whether or not the Animorphs or Andalites are humans, she mentions that there have been like no human casualties in a lot of the missions like most of the missions, like maybe all of the missions, there are no human casualties.
0: I'm pretty sure that was Visser 1 bluffing. Oh. <sighs> I mean, it would have to be, right? We've 100% seen human casualties just in the books that we've read.
1: Yeah, I mean, Rachel is tossing people left and right like they're ragdolls.
0: Yeah, I I am 100% sure that we have seen not only just implied, but actual human casualties. So it's interesting. I sort of believe that Visser One is telling the truth about the ratio of casualties hork to human. Hmm. Um, although that might be obscure to the Council of Thirteen just because they field so many more Hork-Bajir in melee combat situations.
1: Oh, that makes sense, yeah.
0: So there might be like a confirmation bias to that. But anyway, I 100% believe that they almost subconsciously murder less human controllers than Alien controllers, but I'm pretty sure that Visser One saying, you know, now that I think about it, I can't I, I can't remember one report of a human controller casualty coming across my desk. She's just fishing.
1: I like that. I think that makes more sense to me because I yeah, it just seems so impossible that they haven't accidentally mauled to death somebody. I mean, I know Cassie's <laughs> really, really affected by the one hork that she killed after they were supposed to surrender in that one book. Book 19, actually, but like, maybe not book 19. Anyway, it, it, it just no, I yeah, I like I like that angle that Viser 1 is just goading them almost.
0: Yeah, yeah, Viser 1 is fishing because Viser 1 suspects but Viser One's is not 100% certain because it's primarily remember Viser 1 is not in charge of the Earth invasion. So it's primarily Viser 3's underlings that are aware of Oh, yeah, there's some humans that can morph and we pretend that they're Andalites so we don't get tailbladed to death. Mm-hmm. V- viscer one probably has like heard rumors viscer one maybe suspects but viscer one doesn't have their underlings like oh yes we know for certain yeah not like viscer three whose underlings know for certain but viscer three's like <laughs> i don't want to fucking hear it <laughs> because viscer three is obsessed with andalites he yeah. wants to imagine that he has a gang of andalite opponents that he can capture and cycle through i guess because he's sort of a yerk andalite otherkin hmm <laughs>
1: He's so sad, though. Like, it's just so sad to me that he wants so desperately to be battling Andalites because he love Andalites and he wants to be an Andalite and he is an Andalite, but like, not really. I bet if Espelin got the ability to morph from the morph cube, he would just get Andalite DNA and become an Andalite Noplin. I think that's how much he loves Andalites.
0: (laughs) I I mean I would be right with you, except that he obviously loves the Andelite ability to morph as well, and if Nothlets can't true. be affected by the Escaphil device, then
1: Well well, let me ask you, Brent, uh-huh. do you think do you think Espelin loves being an Andelite more or less than he loves swallowing things whole?
0: Ooh. Right? That's tough. I don't know if anybody knows that except except Espelin and Aloran, and they're not talking. <laughs> uh-uh.
1: <laughs> that's true. As an Andalite, the only thing you can swallow whole is a snail that you choose to step on.
0: Ah, uh, we also know, <laughs> however, that Esplin really, really loves riding everywhere in a limousine.
1: Yeah, that's such a weird thing. That that's such a weird detail that keeps every time, every time he's human and he goes somewhere, it's in a limo. What is that about,
0: Brent? I don't know. I really don't. Like maybe the Yerkes just like bought one. Like early on, and now it's like, well, we've already got it. We might as well get our money's worth.
1: I like that a lot. Part of me wonders if it's part of uh his human cover story. I'm I'm flashing back to like gargoyles when <laughs> when Demona <laughs> became human by day and ended up having her oh, own human God. human sona That's what I'm imagining for, for Espelin's human persona.
0: Nostalgia really is a drug. <laughs>
1: Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in this book, Brent?
0: No, that'll do it for this week. Uh, Thanks for listening. Um, We always are. We have the best fans in the world who make the best fan art.
1: Oh, my God. It's so good. It's all so good. And it all so terrible. I love the the hoof orifice. (laughs) Yes. Fan art.
0: Excellent. Excellent.
1: Oh, my God. So
0: thank you for listening. Thanks to Dustin O'Dell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. Um, if you want to hit us up with a question or a comment, you can hit us up on Tumblr at Fandalites.tumblr.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Fandalites. You can email us, Fandalites at gmail.com. And of course, our website is Fandalites.com. Jenna, what's the book that we're reading next week? Number 31? Book 31, The Conspiracy. The Conspiracy. Yeah,
1: it's a Jake POV.
0: All right, so read the documents, people. We'll learn all about the uh, the reptilians running the New World Order.
1: I mean, that's not too far off, though, so don't, don't joke too much about that. The
0: Andalites are crisis actors.
1: <laughs> Say the sign off, Brent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, everybody, and until next time, remember, nostalgia is a drug.